this is Yancey Butler, star of the television series Witchblade, and you're listening to the Dead TV Podcast. Welcome back to the Dead TV Podcast, podcast dedicated to all the canceled TV series and science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And tonight we are talking about the next two exciting episodes of War of the Worlds, the TV series, episodes three and four. And Mr. Seneca has the plot synopsis for us for these two episodes, uh, continuing the... Uh, season two coverage. Season two coverage, the... Depressing as it is, because these episodes are pretty damn depressing. <laughs> Season 2, Episode 3, Doomsday. When a... Uh, originally... Let me, let me do that again. Season 2, Episode 3, Doomsday, originally aired October 16th, 1989. When a severe heat wave strikes, the aliens cut off the city's water supply and exploit a local reverend to drive humans into worshipping the Mothran Eternal. Now, I really, really enjoyed this episode. You enjoyed the um, the um, b- the water drought episode more than the p- rock rock and roll episode. Both very <laughs> Kincaid heavy, by the way. They they were they were good episodes. Very Kincaid I, heavy. Also very like Kincaid can get any woman just by looking at him. That's <laughs> true in real life. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> calm yourself. Don't make me break the water out on you coming up soon. Oh man. I- I know. It's gonna be. Uh, <laughs> just gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna call Jason and just be like, "Can you like get a super soaker and just hose her down when it gets a little bit too much?" And he'll be like, "I got you, man. Don't uh, worry." Oh yeah, he's hot. Okay. Um, but did you notice that? It's like, like homeless woman and old flame. Just like, take me. I'm right here. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. That's that's the next one. But uh, in this episode, no, I really liked it because. I'm from California, and we, well, I grew up in basically a water drought, and I remember oh. quite clearly the days of actually having to ration water. Oh. So, so these, uh, this episode particularly was very interesting because it seems that the crisis has gone on for such a long time that the the a major heat wave, the water shortages, everything. It, it's not just affecting the city. Mm. It's affecting the entire area. And so they cannot even travel to get out of the realm of the drought, as oh. you would if you were actually living in California and there was no more water. You'd just move. Hmm. Okay. And here, because the water is being cut off by aliens and nowhere else has water... It, people are dropping like flies from dehydration. And I found that incredibly exciting in this episode. Like, not only the religion and uh, the aliens trying to basically convert people into worshipping the eternal, the drought itself is such a powerful motivator of, human, uh, of humanity that I... I, I I was disappointed, I will say this, I was disappointed when it comes to the next episode when the drought was just kind of forgotten. I thought that the drought was going to be a much more powerful motivator and way for the aliens to actually gain control. It's very powerful, it's effective, and then the next episode is like, oh, uh, music, let's try to control them by music, and I don't know, it just kind of fell flat for me. You'd have to assume that there was actually continuity in these episodes. I know, but the second season seems so much more like a movie. I, I really want it to be. I want it to be a cohesive movie that I can just watch and, you know, like a Netflix uh, Stranger Things where it's one movie, but it's chopped into the episodes. I wanted that for this because this type of storyline is more powerful. It can do that if they were to allow it to continue, but um, they didn't. <laughs> 
Um, so the heat wave is uh, we learned uh, is caused by the aliens. They're the ones responsible for this, uh, and they seem to be like controlling the water. Debbie passes out, which uh, you know is like, oh, she'll be fine. Uh, but we're supposed to be like, oh no, Debbie. And then uh, what's uh, the aliens being behind it? Um, is it seems like we've got like two back-to-back episodes of recycled plot lines, because weren't the aliens responsible for something to do with, like, electricity or something in the previous season? Some I type think of supply, telephone lines, they did something. Some kind of supply thing that they were responsible for cutting off? I can't remember clearly. I know they did something with the telephone lines. Also, you notice the crew in these episodes talking about all everything that we've seen so far. It's everything is contained to the city now. Whereas in the previous season, they went everywhere, everywhere. They went to festivals. Yeah. They went to towns. They went to, you know what I mean. They went to laboratories, bunkers, Pentagon. Everything's in the city. Everything's in this like crappy looking city. Budget really went crashing into the toilet for travel. And also, like this entire scenario is supposed to be in this uh, kind of dystopian type of reality where. Uh, you have curfew every night. There is emergency messages being, you know, blasted out to make everyone aware of the water shortage and when water is coming. So, you know, the world has declined quite a lot since season one. Kincaid pulls a gun on uh, some rioters to get him to stop, but then he still gives the water to one of the rioters causing the problems because he doesn't want to see anybody without water. He goes to the local missionary church or something, and that's where he meets his current love interest for the season. Uh, or, sorry, episode. <laughs> uh, the mother of uh, our MacGuffin character through the, through the rest of the episode, one of two, because uh, the preacher and the boy, um, Sam? Stephen. Stephen basically are our plot point characters for the season. Uh, uh, sorry, damn it. I keep saying season. I mean episode. Um, so the Reverend is played by Kurt Rees, and uh, he was also in Naked Lunch as one of the Exterminators. It's one uh, of my partner's favorite movies. So I oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know what that... Okay. Um, the... Dana Reeves plays uh, Grace, but she's not in a lot of like things that I really know about too much. Other than Witchblade, where she played Mary Siri on uh, the episode Apprehension, mm-hmm. um, and Ready or Not, and she was on Riverdale, but not the current Riverdale. <laughs> well, the actor that plays uh, Stephen, the kid, Nathaniel Moreau, um, Moreau, he was also in Friday the Thirteenth as young Ryan. Oh, that's interesting. That's why his face looked so familiar. Yeah, that would have only been like a year before this. Yeah. Or yeah. the year of, possibly, 1990. Huh? Uh, according to IMDb, it says 1989. So, okay, so the year, yeah. yeah. So roughly filmed, depending on when what was shot first. And he was also in Are You Afraid of the Dark? The aliens basically want to give the humans false hope since they're already controlling the water and want to create, like, a messiah for them that they can control, which they do by kidnapping the Reverend and turning him into one of their clone species, uh, because they find it funny that we worship a god we can't see, whereas their god is a giant eyeball tentacle creature, something out of a hentai cartoon. And I think that they're making fun of the uh, judo-Christian religion of us worshiping the thing we can't see in the sky, or the guy we can't see in the sky, is very funny, and something a lot of atheists love to make fun of because of the stupidity of worshipping something you can't see. You're basically onto your beliefs that it, it's there and that's good enough. But I'm on both sides of that coin, unfortunately. As much as I am a Christian, I don't go to church. I guess I believe in God, but at the same time, show me God. Well, I am not a Christian. <laughs> I we are am both a, a Dionysian Wiccan. We are blasphemous. <laughs> what, what are we called? Uh, what's the H word? Heathen. Uh, no, heretic. Oh, heretic. Yeah. We're heretics. Um, so, I'm Dionysian Wiccan, so I also cannot see Dionysus, you know, he is the spirit of the party, and so that's basically what I, what I worship and adore, but it's not like... There ain't no party Christian but a God. Dionysus party! Ooh, ooh, sorry. Ooh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> Go cult of Dionysus! Um... <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
Now we're going a little too far. Look <laughs> cut all that cult talk. <laughs> it was the most popular cult in all of Greece because they threw the best parties. <laughs> yeah, I bet you they did. <laughs> I know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was the one that was in Caligula, right? <laughs> uh, it was It was all over the um, the entire area. Like It was the most populated cult of worship of any of the Greek gods for the longest time simply because it was a cult of um, orgies and parties and wine and women and of all the good vices in life. Understood. Gotcha. So, you know, I too worship something that's not tangible, but I also acknowledge that it's not tangible and that it's not really there. It's just kind of an energy and I don't really personify it as if it's a person. I don't ask, you know, the person to grant me things. It's not a wishing stone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just something that I keep in my heart as, uh, well, there's things I can't explain. And, you know, hopefully I will get all the luck necessary. So I will do these things in honor. It's much different than worshiping the Eternal, which the Eternal requests uh, success or failure is death. And uh, with Dionysus, you don't have anything like that. Hmm. But Dionysus isn't a giant eyeball with squid tentacles coming out of it, right? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> He's a beautiful youth or a middle-aged fat man. What is the guy healing people a reminiscent of with the touch? Are we just going with Jesus? Yeah, we're just going with Jesus on that one. Okay. Um, it seems like there's like two, three plot lines going on here. We have the aliens trying to take over the world. We have Kincaid trying to be, um, you know, the rogue that he is and help this, you know, beautifully dirty woman and her son. Mm-hmm. And we have Susan and uh, Blackwood's plot line of running around like Mario Luigi. Yeah, and, and Suzanne, I believe, has claustrophobia because she was really freaking out in those sewer tunnels. Oh, I skipped over that because it was just like they were in the tunnels for a little bit, so I started fast-forwarding. <laughs> so I was just like, and then I saw that, I paused and watched it, so I did miss that a little bit. But we were uh, we were getting to, um, I, was, I was crunching for time, and I watched these episodes out of order before I even realized it. Um, like, for instance, I fast-forwarded through uh, the next episode coming up, Kincaid's uh, Sweet, Sweet Lovemaking. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I put that on slow-mo. Oh, I bet you did. <laughs> I bet you did, but that's a whole other podcast. Uh, <laughs> this is where Mr. Zeneca talks about the best lovemaking scenes. So right here, we have what's typically known as... <laughs> I can just see you in front of, like, a blue screen or whatever, but, like, for the audience, they're actually watching the love scene or whatever. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is what we call the missionary position. Yeah. And, and this is what we call the missionary position. And this is what we call... Oh, my God, Hollywood, please put actresses into some other position. <laughs> It's the only one they can get away with in like a PG-13 setting. Because I think the notion of doing doggy style probably constitutes as an R rating, right? (laughs) Maybe. I I mean, come on. Seriously, I think it does. But anyway, that's the next episode. Um, So they clone the kid and the reverend, uh, which is funny. Uh, I think this is the first time we've seen a kid kid being cloned, but we're only like three episodes into the show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they clone Stephen uh, and basically put the passed out clone, or I should say dead clone, where Kincaid will find him. Kincaid brings him to the church, and then miraculously, uh, the body rises as the Reverend is talking about the story of Lazarus. And it's like, it's a miracle! It's a miracle! But the kid acts so strangely. I don't even think that a mother would believe that this was her child. He just acts so strangely, very stiff. Right. And isn't this like know, reminiscent of Changeling? I guess so. Yeah, you know that story, right? Uh, well, the Fae, the Fae Changelings. Uh, okay, there was one. That was one thing I was going with it, but also the movie based on the true story about the woman whose son disappeared, and the LAPD produced a kid that looked exactly like him, but wasn't him when she went to give him a bath and noticed he was uh, he was circumcised, and his her son isn't. Oh. So unless the uh, adopter decided to circumcise her son, which uh, uh, yeah. it, this is not her kid, and she went on a she went on a rampage with the LAPD and got the uh, Justice Department involved, and it led to the uh, the fall of the corruption of the LAPD. Wow. 
It's a no, movie, I hadn't, it's movie I hadn't direct- actually re- seen that one. Okay, yeah, it's based on an absolute true story. It's written by J. Michael Shazinski because it was a long project that he had been working on for years, and he finally got it uh, sold the scripts. It was originally supposed to be directed by Ron Howard, and then Clint Eastwood directed it. And uh, uh, Christina is played by Angelina Jolie. Wow. Star-studded. Insanely star-studded movie. And, again, based on an absolutely true story. And written, again, the story is written by J. Mike, the, the movie is written by J. Michael Straczynski. Awesome. Yeah, so you know it's good. And you know yeah. it's good direct, directed well, because I can't think of a badly directed movie by Clint Eastwood. <laughs> True. So. True. Anyway. I don't like his politics, but he can direct a film. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we um, totally get that. But uh, they, uh, there, there's no politics on any more of the worlds anymore because the government got wiped out, apparently. <laughs> um, Kincaid wearing the, like, just he, he uh, his, uh, his bandana the is scarf so that, The scarf that he puts on his head? Very funny. Also, the scene where we have bullets versus laser pistols is very funny. And Kincaid with the... Um, with the uh, the green goo in his hand, like palming mm-hmm. it as the actor to just smear it across the actress' neck. <laughs> That's supposed to be the knife. He's supposed to be the knife, but I guarantee it's probably like a fake knife, but with like maybe like some blood in it that seeps out when you press it against something. Because it does look yeah. like he has a knife in his hand, and then when he cuts the guy's throat or whatever, he's just putting the makeup on. That's so funny. Yeah. Just a, just a green line. That yeah, 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 yeah. That's so it's damn like, funny. Oh, they're having fun with this. And it's funny the <laughs> fact that the freaking aliens have green laser pistols. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> it's certainly more effective than the other aliens. Why does the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars shoot red lasers, but the Empire shoots blue lasers, but the Jedi have blue lightsabers and the bad guys have red lightsabers? Uh, it's based on the crystals that are used within the lightsaber handle itself. All right, listen, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't try to educate me on Star Wars. But what I'm trying to understand, though, is why does the bad guys shoot the blue, but the good guys shoot the red when it's the opposite of their lightsabers? And yes, I know about the kyber crystals. <laughs> right? Well, if you, make... know, if you know about the kyber crystals, but, 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 then you but, would know but, that they have to be mined in certain areas, and no, certain I, areas are available to Sith. I get that. But do you understand what I'm saying about the color coordination, though? Does it make a lot of sense? I, I'm not sure. The good guys shoot red lasers. The bad guys shoot blue lasers or green lasers out of the TIE fighters and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the good guys have blue la- laser swords. The bad guys have red laser swords. But it doesn't really, like, the colors of those things don't really matter. It matters. That's, that's the point. It matters in the way of like, yes, we can get like bogged down in like deep continuity of Star Wars about like why is the lightsaber red because it's our anger, you know that whole thing. Why is the lightsaber blue or green? It's explained. I don't know. Luke currently has a yellow one. If you're reading the current current Star Wars comic book series, uh, that explains how he got his lightsaber or a lightsaber back. Um, the uh, by the way, speaking of clones, they explain uh, the the clone of uh, Snoke in the most recent issue of Darth Vader. Oh, I won't spoil it for you, but boy, did it piss off the fans! <laughs> okay. Um, man, oh man, the aliens really know how to mass produce the clones in this thing. You think they would just create a clone army, huh? <laughs> and just take over the freaking world? <laughs> well. It's kind of problematic because the, not only do they need the clones, they need to keep the originals alive for them to work. Oh, so they, they need to hide that. a massive amount of people. And they're talking about moving facilities, you know, repeatedly. And they don't really want to move facilities because it's a hassle. Of course it's a hassle to move how many hundreds of people that they've got clones of. I don't know. It just seems uh, like they could easily get around that little problem. I don't know. Maybe. It just seemed like it was too much trouble for them to do it. Because mm. they needed to move them out of the heat, but yet uh, they decided not to simply because uh, it would be too much of a hassle. You notice the guy uh, early in the episode, um, the guy in the clone bat who comes out is wearing a uh, just a, a bit of that clone weird uh, material right around his groin area perfectly to hide his stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's like he's wearing a diaper, but he's also wearing like the like the membrane. Yeah, stuff, the membrane yeah. stuff, whatever, placed over the diaper, so you can you're, you're you're trying not to see that that he's wearing a diaper when he's coming out of the bath or whatever 
um, you know, or speedo chunks or whatever they possibly gave the actor, uh, but to make it look like, you know, to cover up his, just put, just, just show his ass, people. Come on, <laughs> just put someone's <laughs> arm in the way. You know what I mean? <laughs> like a bar or something. <laughs> well, this is prime time television. They had to, you know, cover up and obscure everything. It was on at ten o'clock at night in some syndications. <laughs> well, maybe. Um. I really did like the way that the aliens uh, produced the miracles. Yeah, you know, they had they had they had uh, planted the water pipe, you know, alien technology water pipe, the bio uh, bio water pipe to the holy water fountain, and then just made it overflow with fresh water. And then they got a clone that had this illness that they mysteriously healed when the Reverend touched her, and that alien clone started hanging out with the alien spy and both of them were acting pretty weird so you'd think that they would have stuck out but no they blended right in and you know calls of it's a miracle it's a miracle uh just went to bolster the uh, reverend's uh clout when the alien um reverend versus the christian reverend comes about it's the power of christ versus the power of tentacles <laughs> Um, them also trying to like persuade the humans to start worshiping their tentacle eye god is reminiscent of Dagon in the story. Well, in the movie Dagon, but also the Shadows Over Innsmouth story, it's about a poor uh, fishing village in Ipswich, uh, which I was just near today. I really wish we had taken a drive over real quick. Um, that was worshiping God and Jesus, but having a really bad drought of crops and stuff like that, and fishing. And nothing to trade with other villages with. And this stranger comes along and says, cast out Jesus and start worshipping Dagon. You'll do so much better. And they do. And is that where they turn, start turning into fish people? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Except for uh, one particular family who decides to stay loyal to Christ, but you know, it doesn't really work out too well for them. Yeah. And that's all the notes I have on this episode. Me too. I, I really love this episode. That's all the time we have here for this episode. We're going to take the focus break and a spot break, a spot break, and we'll be back with the second episode of the Dead TV Podcast. Uh, by the way, the episode's title was Doomsday. I think of Superman's enemy who killed him. I'm assuming this is Doomsday because there's no water. So there yes. you go. <laughs> Oregon Ramen is a restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts. Serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen, Thai noodle soups, and the best chicken wings in the Metro West. Everything's done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners, Papanook and Alan McIntosh, combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508 309-3416 or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland and on their website as well www.dorganramen.com people. Where am I? How long was I asleep? 203 years? Today I'm going to awaken you to H.G. Wells's Rip Van Winkle story, The Sleeper Awakes, originally called When the Sleeper Wakes, published in 1899 and rewritten by H.G. and republished under the new name in 1910. He just wasn't satisfied with how it originally came out. The improvements he made were worth it in my opinion. In fact, he did it so well that the subgenre of sci-fi is now called Sleeper Awakes for these types of stories. The Sleeper Awakes is about a man who hasn't slept in six days. He collapses into a trance, a near-death state, suspended animation, and remains that way for 203 years. 
He awakes and finds out that he alone owns the entire world through a combination of inheritances, compound interest, and a council of people who've used his wealth to expand it and their own power in the process. He awakes as the most important man on earth. Futurama's Season 1, Episode 6 pays homage to the compound interest idea. The world the sleeper wakes to is very technologically advanced, but I'll get into that a little later. When I say this is a Rip Van Winkle story, you might not know what I mean. In 1819, American author Washington Irving, the same author that penned The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, wrote Rip Van Winkle, a story of a man that falls asleep for 20 years after drinking an enchanted potion given to him by some strange men, and deals with his absence and having entirely slept through the American Revolution. H.G. Wells takes this idea and builds upon it to imagine what world it looked like to wake in the year 2100 and what if actually being asleep changed the world around you. The book starts slipping into dystopia right away. But before I go deeper into that, I want to mention the origin of this type of story. The first account of a sleeper awakes tale is from the 3rd century AD Greek historian Diogenesis Laertius writes of a philosopher and prophet Epimedius of Gnosis, who was once a shepherd and fell asleep in a cave under Mount Ida, a mountain sacred to Zeus. He awakes 57 years later and has the gift of prophecy. Crazy, I know. An even crazier story comes from Christian and Islamic mythology, known as the story of the seven sleepers of Ephesus. They hid in a cave to avoid persecution. During the reign of Emperor Decius, they awake 200 years later and discover that the whole Roman Empire is Christian. Actually, there are a lot of tales across many world religions, mythologies, folklores, and ancient fairy tales about people who fall asleep and wake up years later to a changed world. So, what did the world look like in the year 2100? If you look at the broad strokes, young people wearing tailored robes, moving walkways, move people like highways, pleasure cities, it doesn't look like our society at all. But when I look at the details, it seems strikingly similar. For one, H.G. Wells predicts the television, or as he called it, the babble device. He described it like moving pictures, like a visual radio. He also predicts a pocket-sized version that played images in succession like a GIF. He described it looking like a keyless pocket watch. He also predicts airplanes. He calls them monoplanes and the pilots aeronauts. More than that though, H.G. Wells imagined a world where women formed over half the workforce, were independent and sexually liberated, equals. His world imagined motherhood as optional and detached. Being a mother doesn't cause a woman to lose her identity. Religion was gone and so too the trappings of faith. One of the stranger things in the novel is that there is a class of people that wear blue uniforms and talk in a pigeoned dialect. These are people that survive in conditions that are just above slavery. But that's not the strange part. Not the strange part at all, actually. The thing that blew my mind is that it's the Salvation Army. Yes, the bell-ringing people at Christmas time. The Salvation Army. Now, stay with me here. The Salvation Army started with homeless assistance in 1865. They had workhouses to get people work and did a lot of charity work. H.G. envisions charity becoming a big business. Well, the Salvation Army is a big business. We're getting closer, I suppose. And eventually, the Salvation Army becoming the Department of Labor, who puts this near-slavery system into place through a group known as the White Council. Currently, the Salvation Army is run by a high council. Hmm. It's like this. People who get down on their luck can go to the Department of Labor, who will set them up with a room and board for one day equal one day work. They only get one penny over their daily expenses, so they don't have the ability to ever get ahead or back on their feet. And that's just enough for a nice dinner out. 30% of the population were in this type of servitude. I mean, today, doesn't that seem possible? Technically not slaves, but totally are? The sleeper being asleep for 203 years, becoming the master of the earth, owner of all things, an implied ruler of the world, and de facto god to these slaves wearing blue, all of their hopes were on the sleeper that when he wakes, he'll set things right. Just the fact alone that he woke up begins a revolution in his name. When the black police, Yes, it's as racist as it sounds. 
are called in to brutalize the white population into control, the sleeper, Graham, realizes that he's been made into a puppet leader and dies in a spectacular aerial dogfight as he risked his life to prove that everything he owned belongs to the people instead. The story showcases how a small group of elites can manipulate a population with oppression, impoverishment, and simultaneously provide them with distraction by technology and pleasure to pacify them. These themes are also central to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and George Orwell's 1984. Echoes of these stories are our lives right now. Technology, distraction, income inequality, surveillance, corporate rule, unfettered capitalism, etc. One of the most interesting passages told of how the people would buy and sell shares of a fictitious business venture that earned dividends every five minutes at 10% and canceled a portion of shares by a lottery wheel. I mean, that could be someone's cryptocurrency theme. It just sounds so plausible for today. There has never been a movie or television show or any media regarding this book. This particular version of H.G. Wells' dystopia has never been brought to the public. Despite being a bit outdated for today's sensibilities, I do recommend reading this book. It's quite interesting and I was highly entertained. I just won't be taking a nap anytime soon. Good night. And we're back with Terminal Rock. Which, I don't know if that's the name of a song or not. But I don't even know if the Scavengers are the name of a band. But I looked that up, as Mr. Zeneca has the plot synopsis. Terminal Rock, uh, Season 2, Episode 4. Originally aired October 23, 1989. The aliens take over the members of a punk rock band and add a secret electronic signal to their music, which will drive young people into a violent frenzy. Meanwhile, Kincaid begins a romance with his late brother's girlfriend. His late brother's girlfriend. Oh, Kincaid, you. You bad boy, you. Okay, so that is the band The Scavengers, which is a New Zealand punk rock band formed in 1977. Um... That sounds nothing like the metal band that plays in the episode. But there is a band called The Scavengers. Oh, cool. Yeah, they have one... They have 29 songs on YouTube. And they're punk rock, apparently. But that doesn't sound too punk rock to me. Sounds more like pop rock. You know, the beginning of this, it opens up in this punk metal industrial concert yeah. area. <laughs> and by the way, we've uh, done this plotline before. You remember Harrison was addicted I, to the music by the aliens? I know, I know. Uh, That's why it was so disappointing when this one came up. Uh, <laughs> so it's taking place at the Scorched Earth Club. And the way that they have the chain link metal fences up, it reminds me of the movie The Hunger. The introduction at the very beginning with Bauhaus um, saying Bala Lugosi's dead. That reminds me so much of what's happening here. You know, the same chain link fence the kind of quick cuts and uh, the, the punkish music. Yeah. Totally reminds me of Bauhaus. Uh-huh. That, yeah. that part, anyway. Yes. I, I believe that. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> so the lead singer is named Mr. Ripper. Um, uh, yeah, I was trying to find him. Oh, Ripper. Okay, so he's played by Lawrence King. Uh, I was trying to find Mr. When you said Mr. Ripper, it threw me off for a second. Uh, bit part actor, been in stuff. I think everyone's been in Kung Fu because we've mentioned it like a thousand times. So he's been in Kung Fu as well. Uh, and he was also in Friday the Thirteenth as well. He was uh, Trevor Midnight Riders. Which episode was that? Midnight Riders. That was the one with the motorcycle gang. Oh right, 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 right. Yeah, totally. Which um, kind of goes along with this episode too, because you know these two types of characters are that you know edge, you know, very rough and not a guy to tangle with and same types of uh, bikers in midnight in the episode rose uh the ex-wife of kincaid's dead brother uh played by shannon lawson was in dick which if you've never seen is a very hilarious movie starring michelle williams and kristen stewart um, also, a very young Ryan Reynolds is in that, too. And she was Dr. Bellows in Mutant X, which we may g get to one day. And, in fact, I think we should, whenever Marvel gets around to doing the X-Men, we should do Mutant X. 
keep it as an idea. Um, I think it only ran for two seasons. I might be wrong. If it's ran for more, then we won't do it. Uh, ran for oh, ran for three seasons. So definitely be a show we'd have to get committed to. But uh, it was syndicated TV's X Men. Okay, and she was also in a TV series called Robo Roach. And there was a Salem Witch Trials uh, made-for-TV movie, which I think I've mentioned before. I don't know if it's been on this podcast or not, but I've always wanted to see. A masterful work accurately details the current consensus of what exactly occurred to prompt the colonial witch trials, which I learned about last night because I was in Salem. This movie starred Kirstie Alley, and uh, it, uh, it, it, the... The Salem Witch Trials is all about, like, uh, uh, a Native American slave who basically told tales to some girls and caused uh, the girls to spread the gossip about uh, weird stuff that she was talking about. Oh. Yeah. Did you, did you know that? That's what started the Salem Witch Trials? No. Yeah. No. Um, anyway, moving on back to the War of the Worlds and their own witch so, hunt. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rose's... Um, brother, it took me a while to figure out that this was her brother, Larry, uh, is played by James Wolvet, and he was also on um, some things rec- recently, it's uh, Fragments, Helter Skelter TV movie, uh-huh. Jag, a lot of people like Jag, uh, Joan of Arc. Um, I, I've never watched it. <laughs> it's really for older people, you know? <laughs> Well, isn't it a spinoff of... Uh, oh, no, NCIS is a spinoff of JAG, right? I'm not sure which came first. JAG is like the naval careers. Right, right, the lawyers. Yeah. Uh, but War of the Worlds, this episode was only his third credit. So this was at the very beginning of his acting career. Gotcha. The... Um, Aliens come to entice the band leader and end up kidnapping him. Uh, and then as the band leader and is getting kidnapped and turned into a clone to start controlling everyone with his music, Rose and Kincaid bang. Yes. Mr. Zeneca <laughs> took the extra long time to watch this episode on slow, slow, slowness. Yes, I did. <laughs> no, they're not really doing anything except for kissing. Yeah, but it, it's, a, your, it's your imagination that allows you to go there, you know. Just, you just gotta have to imagine things. Right. Softcore porn, you just have to imagine things. Speaking of softcore porn, have you ever actually watched the first season of Highlander? I have. Very like long time ago. softcore porn. It is. <laughs> it oh, is. So like, the good. women on that show, they be showing movies. A lot of movies. It's so good, though. It's so good. I was rewatching it recently because Adrian Paul is on War of the Worlds right now, and I'm like, it's quick, but I swear to God, I just saw, yeah, nope, that those are those are titties, yeah, wow, and uh, I guess maybe it's the DVD that put them back in or something, you know what I mean? I I have not seen it on DVD, so I don't really have a basis for comparison. Oh, okay. Uh, my roommate has like every season of it. Including the spinoff, which uh, was the Raven character that showed up every once in a while that Adrian Paul would get with. Ah. Yeah. Um, Debbie, of course, is addicted to this music because she's young and impetuous and naive and whatever other words I could describe a 13-year-old girl. She's also living 200 feet below the surface of the Earth, and she's bored as hell. Oh, boo-hoo! There's people dying on the surface of COVID-19. I mean, excuse me, of whatever the problem is with planet Earth in this series currently. And Kincaid obviously does uh, cannot... I don't understand. Kincaid, one minute, is being counseled by Debbie over what's happening and not being able to help Grace, you know what I mean? And he's feeling, like, a lo- you know, down on himself, and she, like, puts her hand in his hand or whatever. And the next mm-hmm. episode, he's just, like, frickin' brat, you know? Tired of her. Tired of everyone. I'm a loner. Well, I'm a rogue. I gotta be alone. <laughs> Get the hell out for five minutes so I can brood. Well, I guess if you're not really used to having kids around, it can be uh, irritating at times. Right, especially a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, teenager. With all their teenage problems, boy or girl, I can guarantee you're probably not used to it. Especially, you yeah. know, if they're, like, just trapped down there with you. 
So the aliens put uh, ear implants into the rest of the bandmates so they can be on the same wavelength, I suppose, it so was, that they didn't have to actually clone them, but they can control them in certain ways. It was Khan. He put things in my ears, Captain. <laughs> oh, the bug, the bug. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah, the, oh, yeah, the larva of the bigger bug. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Love that scene, don't you? Oh, and the grosses me out. I always think about it whenever a bug crawls into my ear. <laughs> oh, no, no, don't even suggest that. Because it can get to your brain and start laying eggs next to it. No, it can't. Yes, it can. Everyone believe no, that. Everyone clean your ears out with wax remover. You can buy it like CVS or something. <laughs> so these ear implants allow the bandmate to actually be more uh, hardy, I guess you'd call it, because they were shot several times, but they were still up and at him and going. And so Suzanne suggests that the ear implant adds some sort of virality to the body, because he, or otherwise he would have been dead a long time ago. Absolutely. So when the, so when the earpiece gets removed, he just dies. Mm. Music in this episode had to have been written for the episode because I couldn't find anything on Shazam every time they played. Yeah, I, I couldn't find anything on the music either. They called themselves the Terminal Band, or the Scavengers, but I couldn't find anything serious on that. Yeah, well, the band was the Scavengers. That's that the the Terminal Band. I didn't remember hearing that. I thought they called themselves the Scavengers all the time. The uh, the alien that comes up that impersonates basically Scavenger. a um, record so, label, I suppose you'd call it. Right. He referred to them as the Terminal Band. Maybe to be the terminal that terminates the Earth or something. Just so on IMDb, all of the credits for them are listed as the Scavenger music, Scavenger, uh, Scavenger music, main title of the Scavenger music. So yeah, they, I don't know why. I don't want. I don't know why the guy said Terminal Band. Then I don't know either. Stephen Cohen uh, worked with Fred Molin, who we've had on the show, to. Uh, to do this, uh, he, he Fred Fred came on uh, for Friday the Thirteenth, and then he came on the Dead TV, uh, sorry, the Radio Horror Show, talking about the Friday Forever Night, damn it, Forever Night music. Uh, but he worked with Stephen Cohen on this episode, and Stephen worked on eighteen episodes of the War of the Worlds uh, second season. Nice. Mm, yeah, maybe we can have Fred back on the show to talk about the music about War of the Worlds. Let's see how many episodes of this he did. Because he did all 72 episodes of Friday the 13th. Uh, oh, he only did one episode of War of the Worlds, according to IMDb. This one. Oh, oh that's too bad. Yeah, so. But it, but he was working on Friday the 13th from 87 to 90. So he was working on Friday yeah. the 13th at this time. He was busy. Yeah, he was definitely very busy. And then he jumped over to Beyond Reality for 22 episodes. Uh, and he did the Revenge of the Nerds TV movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you think they'll ever make Revenge of the Nerds today? No, no. The times are not right for the Revenge of the Nerds. No. I think they could no. do it in a way that's not nearly as insulting. There's no weird rape scene. And <laughs> it's not the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I, I just... I would rather leave that to the 1980s. Yeah, possibly. Maybe. Uh, there's a there is a no joke Revenge of the Nerds movie minute podcast too by the way. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm so far behind in my movie minute podcast, which is currently covering Life Force. I've got to get those episodes posted. Uh, I've been dealing with other vampire problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I couldn't find anything about Terminal Rock. Maybe that's where it's coming from when he said the terminal. You know, terminal terminated. Term the, you know, finite. Maybe that's what they mean, maybe? I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. He did say terminal band. Right, I got that. Just, it does, uh, I don't know. Um, the director so the of the plan... episode... Go ahead. So, so the plan is that uh, the aliens will put this device, this bio device, inside the amplifier to amplify the signal and to cr insert the alien wave pattern in order to increase the violence. It's successful. Harrison immediately reacts to the music because, I believe, since he's experienced this before, he remembers what it feels like, and he uh, basically trains his mind, like, think of m multiple times tables or something, and so he trains his mind to kind of not think about the music and therefore not be persuaded by it. 
But uh, Kincaid is really got his hands all over Larry. Is going to kill him because he's being controlled by the music, and that anger and aggression is really coming out. But luckily, he stops himself. The episode was directed by Gabriel Peltier, who also directed one other episode coming up, uh, Video Messiah. Uh, so yeah, we're still 19, this is October 23rd, 1989. Uh, so Video Messiah would be at the end of this season that he directed, and uh, it's pretty much the only thing really I've ever seen that he's done. TV documentaries, Real Detective, The Detectives, The Case That Haunts Me, uh, all detective documentary shows. Uh, I don't, I've never seen Real Detective, but I've never seen Real Detective or True... What's the a Showtime show? Is that True Detective or Real Detective? Mm, I'm not sure. I don't have Showtime. Okay. Um, oh, it's True Detective. That's the name of the show that I'm thinking of that's very popular. So, in the chaos of the band's violence and, and all of that, gunshots are fired, uh, the brother is shot, the singer is shot, and, and the singer is shot dead. And then the alien uh, recruiter, I guess, is shot dead as well. We definitely should reach out to some of the people who are bit part par- characters like we have before sometimes, uh, because this actor who played scavenger number one, Dylan Neal, uh, was Dr. Professor, uh, he was Professor Ivo on Arrow. Um, and he was, uh, he's got a, uh, recurring character in the Fifty Shades of Grey movies, uh, that are absolutely terrible. But, uh, but, uh, do you know who Professor Ivo is in the Arrowverse? Which we've mm. tiptoed around into, uh, when we did Constantine? Um, it's not coming to me. Professor Ivo is best known for creating the android Amazo, uh, who has the ability to mimic all the powers of the Justice League. Oh. He's one of their most formidable opponents. Uh, but he was also on Sabrina the Teenage Witch as Aaron Jacobs, and he was on Dawson's Creek and Hyperion Bay. Uh, the, he was on 196 episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful. And he was also on one of my favorite shows, Babylon 5. And he's uh, he was actually in the, the TV movie The Legend of the Rangers, To Live or and Die in Starlight. He's also in uh, Prom Night 3, The Last Kiss. <laughs> Oh. Um, but uh, yeah, we should try like trying to hunt down some of the bit part people for ep- upcoming episodes. Yeah, maybe they're going to be more uh, willing to talk to us rather than uh, everyone else that says, no, go away. Yes. I have no knowledge of that show that you speak of ever, anymore, never again. And then we put them into some type of like trauma or something. Yeah. We don't want to bother anyone. We just want to talk to some people. Right. Of course, the first person I click on for the next episode died in uh, 2018 at the age of 100. No. So that was a bad choice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's a crazy club fight that I put down in my notes because there is a massive crazy club fight. Also, dumbass Debbie puts the thing in her freaking ear. Jesus Christ. Uh, It's like... She's 13 years old. This should be another lesson right up there about putting things in your mouth and choking on them. Um, the band reminds me of a gang that would be led by Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face. Yeah, yeah, because their faces are painted half white and then half kind of skin tone colored. Right. It's a little nuts. Yeah. As a standalone episode, this one was all right. But because this type of plot line was done in season one and uh, my expectation about seeing Doomsday and then this one, as a standalone episode, it's good. You know, if I didn't see all those that other stuff, the, the, this would have been good as a standalone on its own. But considering that it's a recycled plot line and that it had nothing to do with the episode before... I didn't really care for this one as much. No, neither did I. By the way, I'm not even joking, Mr. Zeneca. I've clicked on five people's names for the next episode to follow through with what I said about finding a bit part person. Guess where uh-huh. all those five people are? Dead? Dead. Yeah. Uh, one of which is a famous actor from a famous series of Jim Henson productions we will get to. Also a famous Boondock Saint actor as, as well, which I, could, I I almost completely forgot that he was in the Boondock Saint films. Now I'm curious, who did you click on? Ah, that would be Telling Tales out of school. You'll have to wait till you watch the episode to find out what actor was in the Boondock Saints, both films, 
and played a famous Jim Henson character, and it's the same character. Ah, this is gonna. I'm gonna have to like. When watch you watch the episode, you when you watch the episode, he is very recognizable because of like the way he's mostly known for looking. Uh, but yes, uh, that was a funny joke when Sean Patrick Leonard came on my show years ago. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Boondock Saint actor told me, "Did you know that it's the same character from the from the from the um, the, 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 the 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 Henson Productions?" And I was like, "Oh my God, you're right." <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I'm gonna say. Tune in next uh, two weeks uh, where we have the next episode of the Dead TV podcast. So you should be listening to this hopefully on the 21st or the 22nd of May. The next episode will actually be in June. So and I'll be coming off of vacation, hopefully riding around on my motorcycle, not having gotten myself killed. And we will hopefully have some interesting news for you about the show. And you can find us on the Dead TV podcast on Facebook or on the World of the Worlds groups, which I'm in a couple of as the Dead TV podcast page. I don't know if you're in these World of the Worlds groups, Mr. Zeneca. I am. Okay. I am. All right. I've been keeping up. Cool. They post a lot of really cool stuff. Somebody posted a picture of the actor who played Harrison Blackwood and him as a kid. Like he went to a convention and met uh, Jared Martin. Oh, that was so cool. Yeah. Very, very jealous. Jared Martin, unfortunately, has passed away. Um, so, uh, he is no longer with us to have him on the show, but, um, he, uh, you know, very well-known actor and a lot of really cool stuff, uh, throughout his time up until 2003 when he passed away. Uh, the biggest thing was I didn't realize he was on Dallas prior to War of the Worlds. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Not a big Dallas fan, so, but, uh, I do remember yeah. wa- hunting down the episode because my roommate has all the seasons. When I found out he was on The Incredible Hulk, he's in one of those episodes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, the War of the Worlds community on Facebook is really vibrant, actually. Um, someone on there has given us access to some of the um, you know, movies and clips and things that we might not have. We're going to go through those and uh, give proper credit where credit is due at that time. Right. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at ChrisDSAV and at ElegantlyKinky or send us the email, thatradiohorror at gmail.com. And tune in in a couple weeks for the next exciting episode of World of the Worlds, the series. Good night.